This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. This week, Advent Health received 20,000 doses of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine and they began vaccinating frontline healthcare workers. Those doctors and nurses are among the first to receive the vaccine in Florida and they're also the first wave of the massive statewide and nationwide effort to get a handle on the pandemic through vaccinations. And we'll have hundreds if not thousands uh, per day as people sign up and as the supply uh, continues to get delivered. I would point out that this was one shipment. We'll be getting additional shipments in several weeks to provide the second dose. For more, here's Abe Abaraya, WMFE's health reporter. Abe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So talk to me a little bit about the rationale for giving healthcare workers the first shots in this uh, first wave of vaccinations. Absolutely. So healthcare workers obviously are going to be some of the most directly affected by this because they're going to be caring for patients who have, you know, COVID-19. So right now in Florida, you've got about, um, you know, 4,500 or so patients in, in hospital right now with a primary diagnosis of, of COVID-19. And so the way hospitals um, are prioritizing this right now is they're looking at anyone who's working in a COVID ICU, um, anyone who's looking at just a general ICU, because um, even if it's not necessarily entirely COVID-19 patients in the intensive care units, there are going to be patients who are going to be getting uh, on ventilators. And that's uh, a risky procedure when it comes to aerosolizing um, any of the, the COVID-19 that could potentially be in someone's, deep down in someone's lungs. And so people who are in COVID ICUs, regular ICUs, emergency departments, just because they're getting huge floods of people who are coming um, from the general uh, community. So that's a higher risk group as well. And then, uh, again, anyone who's doing, you know, surgical procedures or anything that could aerosolize, um, you know, the, the liquid inside someone's lungs. Um, so that's people who are doing surgeries, anesthesiologists, respiratory therapists. And what's been kind of nice about this and, and you know, surprising to see and, and really nice to see is that they're not just limiting it to direct healthcare providers. They're, they're looking at the entirety of the people who are working in these areas. Uh, so if you're an environmental services um, employee who is working in a, in a COVID ICU, you are eligible to, to get the vaccine at this point. I just wanted to take a sidebar, if I could, for a moment. Early on in the pandemic, Abe, there was a real shortage of some pretty critical equipment like PPE, even just masks and, and gloves and gowns and face shields, that stuff was in short supply. Has uh, that sort of supply chain issue evened out a little bit now, sort of nine months into this thing? It's not as bad as it was by any stretch of the imagination. Now, that being said, the current numbers of hospitalizations and the current projections that we're seeing based on the number of people who are, are testing positive on a daily basis in Florida, it is making some of the hospitals a little bit more keeping an eye on their PPE supply chain right now and looking at it and saying, well, we want to make sure that we're not burning through too much personal protective equipment. But at, at this point, it's not the same supply chain issues that you saw in the beginning of the pandemic. And the hospitals have had a chance to sort of stockpile and reevaluate. And in a lot of cases, they're, they're not just, there's been a lot of the talk about the N95 masks that are sort of, you, you know, you're supposed to wear them for one patient encounter and throw them away. But a lot of the hospitals have made the switch to, you know, if, if you're working in a COVID ICU or an ICU, you know, you're, you're probably going to be have um, they're opting to buy the more expensive respirators that have replaceable filters, but they last longer. And so that there's a much larger upfront cost. But then down the line, it's a little bit easier. You're not you're not trying to have someone have 10 or 20 or 30 masks in a shift. If, if it was in a perfect world and you were actually were able to just use one 
mass per encounter. Well, back to the vaccinations, Abe. Uh, there's a bit of a PR element too to healthcare workers, frontline folks there getting the vaccine first, right? Because health authorities have to convince a pretty large proportion of the population that the vaccine is safe and wor- worthwhile. How will seeing nurses and doctors get the shot change hearts and minds? That's definitely the hope is that, you know, you have people who are in a, a trusted position who are willing to step up and say, hey, not only am I just hearing about this vaccine and deciding that I want to take it, I'm looking through, uh, I'm reading the, the safety data that the FDA published that, that's publicly available for anyone to read through. Uh, and I, I've made this decision that, that I'm going to go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, so you, you do have that there is a lot of goodwill when it comes to particularly doctors and nurses that seeing this group of people um, getting vaccinated hopefully will, will convince more people that hey, these are healthcare workers, they, they understand the science and they're, they're willing to do it. Now, that being said, um, there is a decent amount of vaccine hesitancy out there. Uh, so the most recent polling that Kaiser Family Foundation did, and, and they, they've been doing this steadily during, during the year, um, is about 71% of people say that they will get a vaccine if it's offered for free. And about 27% say they probably or definitely won't. So it's about 27% who are vaccine hesitant. Um, and, you know, more people are saying that they will take it um, post-election and post um, the, the FDA emergency use authorizations for the one vaccine uh, that we've got right now. So that is going up. Um, but at the same time, there are about 27% who say they probably or definitely won't. And when you break it down by demographics, um, it's Republicans and black Americans and people living in rural areas who are the most likely to say that they are, you know, they don't want to get this vaccine. And so that that's the group that they're essentially focusing on. And oddly enough, that does include about a third of people who are essential workers are, are in that vaccine hesitant group. And about 29% of people who work in healthcare settings are in that vaccine hesitant group, hesitant group. So there is some convincing that needs to be done, even among healthcare workers, that this is a safe and effective thing to go ahead and get done. And all the studies on the sociology of it are really just that if you see people you trust and if you see your friends getting it uh, and people you know getting it, then that's going to make people more likely to think, okay, this is okay for me to get. Right. I... The other thing, too, is we've heard some uh, from elected leaders, uh, for example, in Orange County, Mayor Jerry Demings, he, he talked about the some of the barriers uh, to to getting the vaccine out or, or unwillingness, particularly in the African-American community, and said that he would be stepping up to get the vaccine and, and doing it very publicly uh, when that's available to him, just to sort of make that point. Are we hearing about other uh, local celebrities in Central Florida, at least, volunteering and saying, yes, I'm going to take this thing just to encourage people? We are hearing from some of the, you know, local elected leaders that they're, they're going to stand up and, and hopefully do this and, and likely do it in a very public fashion. Same with uh, some of the healthcare providers, you know, like Dr. Ralpino and some of the folks from Advent who, who do a lot of press conferences who have said, hey, you know, I'm going to get this as soon as it's available to me. So you are seeing that there, there have been some calls as well on like sort of the, the political front. We've talked about it before. You've got some former presidents like Obama, Clinton and Bush who have talked about getting the vaccine publicly. There's there's that sort of history where uh, Elvis got vaccinated for polio. Sure. You know? Yeah. And so there, there might be some other sort of national celebrities. 
And, and there's been some calls for in Florida for, for Governor Ron DeSantis to do something and, and maybe try and do something um, in, a, in a bipartisan way to, to, to sort of convince people that this vaccine is safe and effective. And uh, particularly because he really, from a policy perspective, he resisted a lot of the calls for doing any kind of further restrictions um, to, to curb the spread of COVID-19 in Florida right now. So all the eggs are kind of in that vaccine basket right now. So there, there's that push to, to make sure that as many people as possible view this vaccine as safe and effective and, and sign up when it becomes available. And, and admittedly, right now we're at the point where it's healthcare providers and people in long-term care, but uh, hopefully in a few more months, February and by, by summer, it'll be more widely available. Indeed, and numerous vaccines as well, not just the Pfizer vaccine, which is rolled out first. If you're just joining us, we're talking to 90.7 Health reporter Abe Abariah, talking about the task of vaccinating people against COVID-19 in Florida, at least. Abe, the 20,000 doses or so in Central Florida have been distributed to Advent Health first. Who's next as far as healthcare providers? Are we looking at Orlando Health and others? Yeah, it, it was actually really fascinating, too. You would think that this vaccine is going to come in like some kind of special delivery truck and people with full gear are going to be getting it. It's just a FedEx truck with boxes. It was, it was kind of fascinating. But yeah, so they, they got the 20,000 doses that went to Advent Health. They were one of the five uh, hospitals across the state that Florida selected to get those those early doses. And so Advent expects about 9,400 of their workers to get this vaccine. And that leaves about 10,000, a little bit more than 10,000 to be distributed to other healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And they've said that they are going to be delivering those vaccines to Orlando Health. Uh, It's the other major hospital system in Central Florida, uh, in the Orlando area. They will start vaccinating their employees starting on Friday and then beginning next week as well. And then they're also going to give it to Nemours and to HCA as well. So uh, it's about 50% 50% going to Advent Health and about 50% going to other other uh, hospital facilities in Central Florida. Abe, you mentioned before when we were talking about the, the data on who's willing to take the vaccine when it's available, but what are we hearing from frontline healthcare workers generally in Florida about the fact that that vaccine is now coming in and here in, in Florida? I would say the the vast majority of the healthcare workers that I've talked to and that I, I'm seeing online are are glad there's a vaccine. They're they're happy that there's a vaccine coming. That you know it's sort of a, a massive amount of stress relief. That here is a chance for me to get vaccinated. And and for for most people working in healthcare, the biggest concern is not necessarily am I going to get COVID nineteen because there's sort of that acceptance of risk of this is part of my job and this is what I signed up to do. You know, the bigger concern is, do I bring it home and, and, and get someone that I live with or that I love infected? And mm-hmm. so having that potential for a vaccine and, and sort of that stress relief is, is absolutely making a lot of people in healthcare extremely happy. That being said, there are people who are, as we talked about, in healthcare workers that are, are hesitant about it. A lot of people are worried about the side effects. That's kind of the number one concern as well. You know, I'm worried about um, getting the vaccine and then getting sick from it. And this vaccine is different from most. It's it's not a live virus. It is not an attenuated virus. It's it's messenger RNA. It's an entirely different, entirely new way of, of creating a vaccine. But what we are seeing is that there are side effects. Your injection site hurts. And, right. you know, you might run a fever and feel kind of lousy for a day. And so people are worried about that. Hospitals are talking about trying to stagger who's getting it so that you're not giving... You don't want to give 
every person who works on one unit the vaccine on the same day and then everyone feels lousy for a day and then you're short staffed. Mm -hmm. So there are kind of some of those concerns as well. Right now, none of the hospitals that I've seen, and I don't, I think it's because they probably aren't able to, they're not requiring a COVID-19 vaccine to be an employee or to, to work. Hmm. That will likely change once this is no longer under an emergency use authorization from the FDA. Once this is just an FDA approved vaccine, chances are most of the healthcare facilities are going to require their workers to get vaccinated for COVID-19 unless they have some very specific reasons why they're they're not going to get it. And mm-hmm. they, they usually do have some carve outs in there. Yeah, it's interesting actually thinking about that because uh, that was a question I put to a spokesperson from Orange County Public Schools a couple of weeks back when we were talking about the prospect of a vaccine and how schools were contemplating this next semester, and they said, well, we haven't really thought about that yet, but I wonder if that could change for schools in Florida as well. Well, the first thing to remember, too, is that we're not anywhere near a pediatric vaccine. Right now, it's 16 and up is what's being, um, you know, has been studied and, and you know, the, the uh, Pfizer vaccine and potentially the Moderna, it's probably going to be in the 16 and up population. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot more studying that has to be done before they would be able to recommend it at the pediatric level. So we're probably at least a year, if not, you know, you're looking at fall of 2021 where this might be available. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, you know, do school boards require it um, to come to school? Um, that's going to be a really tough policy decision from school boards. There may end up being some intervention at some level at the state where you might see a a policy that's coming out of Tallahassee or from the governor's office that makes a directive one way or another. But that that is going to be a really major flashpoint in the coming years is do you require children to get uh, a COVID-19 vaccine when it is available? Mm -hmm. Now, we were talking a little bit about the logistics of getting the vaccine distributed to healthcare workers, but we also heard this week from Orange County's health officer, Raul Pino, who described the effort to get long-term care facility residents and staff vaccinated as a, quote, logistics nightmare. It's about 9,000 or so residents of those facilities in Orange County. Talk to me, Abe, a little bit about the storage, transportation and deployment of challenges of getting this vaccine deployed in Central Florida. Yeah, the Pfizer vaccine, it is, you know, has to be kept at extremely cold temperatures, minus 90 degrees Celsius, you know, colder than an Arctic winter is the the sort of trope at this point. Um, So that is a logistical problem. So it has to be kept uh, on dry ice when it's transported, has to be kept in special refrigerators that can keep it at that temperature. Um, And then once, you know, you warm it up, you've got um, a little bit of time where you, you know, you can keep it at a a warmer temperature before while the vaccine is safe. So it is sort of, you know, a hub and spoke system where it's being delivered to the places that have these specialty freezers that can keep it and then move it out to to um, other areas. And, And that's part of the reason why we're seeing these first doses going to Advent Health and and hospitals, because they do have a better capacity for keeping the vaccine extremely cold and then getting it to their workers at a point of care. Um, they, they've got experience doing that and they've got the logistics already in place for some of that. Now, if the Moderna vaccine is ultimately approved and, and gets an emergency use authorization, that one is less of a supply chain um, nightmare, as, as Dr. Ralphino would like to call it, um, because that one can be kept in a regular freezer, essentially. And then it has, once it's warmed up, it has a longer shelf life, about 30 days that it can be warm. 
Um, it can be kept in like refrigerated temperatures uh, and, and, and then given. So that one's going to be a little bit easier. And there, there are more doses of that one that appear on deck to come to Florida than the Pfizer vaccine. So right now, yes, it is going to be really difficult, particularly, you know, Dr. Pino was talking about those 9,000 people in long-term care facilities in central Florida and all of the issues you have around getting consent for people who maybe, you know, might be dealing with uh, memory care issues or might not have, you know, their own power of attorney and things like that. So it, it's going to be difficult um, to get those 9,000 people in long-term care vaccinated in the month that Governor Ron DeSantis has sort of set that target. You know, the Orange County Health Department's all hands on deck on that. They actually were talking about there are going to be doing some programs that are going to be put on hold while they're doing this vaccination program so that they have more staff available to do it. What about the cost, though? Because, uh, you know, there's a fantastically complicated venture just getting the vaccine out, the, the logistics of it, but also developing vaccines. The Companies spend a lot of money on the research and development of these things, too. So what are we looking at for the Pfizer vaccine, at least? Well, what's been reported is that the government operation warp speed has acquired about 100 million doses of the pfizer vaccine that's what they um, have committed to the reported price on that is about 20 dollars per dose the other vaccines that are in development the expectation is sort of the wholesale likely government price will be between 20 to 50 dollars per dose so that that does add up quite quick when you're talking about vaccinating an entire country and honestly the entire world you know on a long enough timeline but right now, the expectation is that at the point of care, this will be delivered at no cost. And so if as, as consumers, um, physicians, nurses, you know, all the people at this point who are lining up to get it, they're not going to be paying anything out of pocket for it. Uh, and part of that is being done at federal policy level. And it's, it's one of those things that's being done to incentivize the largest amount of people you can to get the vaccine. They, they really want to eliminate as many barriers as possible um, to have people basically roll up their sleeves and, and go ahead and get vaccinated as soon as possible, as soon as they're able to, because you have to get to 70, 80 percent of the population getting vaccinated to, to start really seeing the herd immunity and life returning back to a little bit closer to, to pre-pandemic normal. We've been speaking with WMFE health reporter Abe Abariah about the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine and those other vaccines lining up behind that. Abe, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Still to come from Chaucer's medieval poems about the plague to the present day where the coronavirus has been reported on and speculated about on Twitter and other social media, we'll take a look at how pandemics are recorded and written about across the centuries. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A mysterious deadly disease spreading like wildfire, fear and speculation about the origins and how to treat and prevent it, and a pandemic that breeds misinformation and mistrust of the authorities. No, we're not talking about the coronavirus pandemic, but the bubonic plague that swept through Europe in a series of epidemics beginning in the Middle Ages. Information and misinformation in 2020 spreads a lot faster than it did in the Middle Ages, but some things haven't changed that much. Jana Matthews says our response to this pandemic today resonates in the literary records of the past. Jana Matthews is an associate professor of English at Rollins College. She specialises in medieval literature. Jana, welcome back to Intersection. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. So the last time we talked to you on this program was about Game of Thrones, and we were discussing how that uh, TV series drew on medieval literature and culture as source material. I'm wondering now, sort of living through 2020, what parallels you're seeing with how we're responding to this pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, and how similar outbreaks of disease in the past were treated in medieval writing especially. What was really striking to me as this pandemic hit last spring was um, that just how similar our initial kind of reaction were to how uh, people in the Middle Ages responded to the plague um, in the 1340s and 1348, 1349, when it swept through Europe. Um, people went into quarantine and they shut up businesses. They, sh- you know, shut, basically shut down society, um, just like we did now. And so that was that. That's important. And I think that we also can look back to history to see and get a glimpse of like what is what is coming with us with the um, with, with sort of the vaccine. Uh, they, did, of course, didn't have a vaccine for the plague. But if you move forward a couple hundred years to the era of smallpox, uh, they they did have a vaccine for smallpox and developed that. And people freaked out about it. Um, they were. Um, there was a lot of public resistance for a lot of different reasons, uh, mostly because it was just the concept of injecting something in your body um, was viewed as gross and immoral and tampering with God. Um, and so I think a lot of the same questions and issues that we that are swirling around today about the vaccine are, are, ones, are, are, are old issues and old questions that we've been asking for millennia. Now, much of the way this disease at least has been reported mm-hmm. and you know reflected on has been through social media, like Twitter being one example of a platform that people have used to spread information, sometimes disinformation. What was the kind of analog for Twitter back in the Middle Ages, like when the <laughs> the, the Black Death, yeah. the bubonic plague, was sweeping through Europe? How are people talking about it, and how is that information getting out there? Yeah, I mean, so they used something called broadsides, which are basically um, kind of, well, pieces of parchment where they would write news and they would send messengers going from town to town. To, um, to spread that news. Later, when they invented the printing press, there was another massive outbreak of the plague uh, in the 17th century, and they would take pieces of paper and they would post them to public areas with, with death counts, right? So they would, for each neighborhood would have a number of people that were inflicted and when they were, in, when they were inflicted and then when they passed away. Um, and they would also pass news from town to town through merchants and through travelers. Most of this, you know, the most of society was shut down, but people did have to go from place to place to deliver goods and supplies. And they would often pack messages or send these individuals um, with, with specific uh, information about what was happening in neighboring towns and villages. Now, some of those writings about the plague, they're almost like mm-hmm. pieces of reportage, right? Like um, Journal of yeah. a Plague Year, for example. Is that stuff that you typically yeah. deal with with your classes? Yeah, so the journey of a plague year written by Defoe, and it, it, it's actually not a first-hand account of the plague that hit London, but it was written about 100 years later. But Defoe went through the public records, and he gathered them all together, and so it's kind of like a, a literary fictional recreation of what the plague was like in the 1650s. And we you know, absolutely study that. And we also look at actual plague documents, um, writings that people wrote during the 1350s, um, or sorry, like, you know, 1348, and the immediate aftermath. Um, throughout all of Europe. Um, that was something that kind of, um, I, I definitely injected into my syllabi last spring when COVID hit. And this semester, too, I kind of brought that in. I think it's important for students to see the historical resonances and, and understand that this isn't the first time that we've, as a society, have, have been in our shoes. You know, people have actually referred to this pandemic as a plague. That word carries some weight to it, though, right? I mean, does it sort of sum up a set response to a disease, whether it's coronavirus or bird flu or anything, really? 
Yeah, I mean, plague is a really, really charged term. Um, you know, it's, it's most commonly associated with the Black Death, and they think that was an incredibly deadly and virulent, um, you know, form of pandemic that we, like, linguistically would like not like to associate with anything else. Um, and so I think that we've, we've tried to abandon that term. The term plague also has religious references in, in Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and so I think as we move to a more secular society, um, we, we, we try to, to steer clear of that term for a lot of, like, social and political reasons. Now, one of the things I think that's captured by people who were documenting plague outbreaks in Europe um, in the Middle Ages and beyond was that sort of sense of the unknown, right? And, and that kind of amplifies the fear of the pandemic. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on how medieval writers would have treated that idea. Yeah, I mean, so they didn't understand or know where the, where the plague came from. Um, they did understand um, that if you were in close contact with somebody else who had it, that, that you increased your likelihood of getting it. So that's hence the social distancing measures that they had. But you know, a lot of their theories in the in the Middle Ages and even sort of in the, the, the centuries after centered around Christianity and Christian beliefs, at least within Europe, um, about you know where the plague came from. Um, many people thought or were taught that um, it was something that uh, was punishment for sort of widespread sin. Um, many people thought a pop- apocalyptic meaning to it that that God was cleansing the earth in preparation for His second coming. Um, outside of the Christian West, so we have um, other, you know, groups and organizations and, and religions and faiths who kind of assign similar interpretations to it as, as a form of um, as a form of cleansing and as also a form of punishment um, for kind of widespread sin. And I guess people had shorter lifespans in the Middle Ages, right? I mean, medical science was pretty rudimentary. Um, how does that environment shape how people respond, whether it's with, with literature or art or just their writing in general? That's a fantastic question, um, and I think a misconception that we have of the Middle Ages and in earlier centuries is that because death was such an integral and omnipresent part of life, uh, it was not uncommon for half of your children to not make it past the age of five, that people were desensitized or sort of immune to grief, and that is, um, you know, people are people, regardless of what era you're born in, and so um, people were very, very aware of, of, of the tenuousness of life and the preciousness of it. And I think because they realized that the time is short and that actually any kind of like minor accident could be deadly, um, they, they lived with a sense of combined like YOLO, you only live once, um, but also with this just a sense of, of deep like reverence for, um, for life and respect and sort of a healthy fear of death. And when you think about and you look at artistic representations of, of the plague or of, of death in general, um, or of society in general, there's often a kind of a grim reaper figure, a skeletal figure hovering in the background, like hanging over beds. Um, and in the shadows, uh, which is sort of a reminder that death is lurking at every corner, mm-hmm. um, and that he kind of stands watch and guard over you, and, and is kind of standing in wait of you. YOLO was a term used in the Middle Ages, at least, or some kind of an analog to that. YOLO was not a term that was used, but it was definitely <laughs> this, uh, the, like, right, like this, this, this sense of, you know, you only live once, eat, drink, mm-hmm. and be merry, was a common theme throughout Chaucer. Um, you know, and, and many of his characters sort of embraced that. And um, and so, especially when you think about the Partner's Tale, which is really only one of the surviving literary texts that we have that talks and references the plague in really direct and explicit terms. And in that tale, uh, there's three rioters, or three young men, partiers essentially, spring breakers, mm-hmm. and they're sitting in a pub while um, drinking, while the carts of dead plague bodies are being carried by early in the morning. And you know, they're drunk as skunks, and and their and their kind of response to this is is like, well, you know. If I'm going to die, then I might as well die, you know, drunk and happy. 
Is that what was going through your mind, sort of looking at some of that uh, television footage or stories early on in the pandemic, at least in Florida, when there were sort of scenes of um, spring break parties in Florida and that attitude was conveyed like, well, you know, what do I need to be worried about? I'm here to party no matter what. Oh, that was exactly what was going through my mind. And in fact, I you know brought those clips in and I showed them to my students and we read those alongside the partner's tale and they you know kind of had these, oh my gosh, moments. Um, you know, it's also sort of a reflection of youthful exuberance and just this generalized sense of of, um, of feeling like you are, um, you know, invincible that I think kind of spans, you know, youth culture from mm-hmm. the Middle Ages all the way up to the present. Going back to, to that, that idea of the unknown and how people in earlier times faced it and, and the explanations they came up for it, whether scientific or, or literary, um, you're sort of seeing some of those parallels play out this year as well because there has been so much... You know, we've had to learn a lot and a very sh- pretty rapid clip to get a vaccine off the ground, but there's still a lot of misinformation and uh, fear floating around a- a- about coronavirus. So are you seeing some of what happened in earlier times play out in 2020 in the response as well? Yeah, so I think that there's, in the Middle Ages and the time of the plague, there was all sorts of misinformation being spread, and, and that misinformation wasn't was a lot of times unintentionally spread. You know, they used to have theories about how, how the plague was spread or, um, you know, how you catch it and how you transmit it. And so those grew into rumors and superstitions, and in some cases, theology. And that, of course, impacted the way that people saw themselves and saw their neighbors and interacted with people, um, and also caused people to do some really terrible, horrible things, like, uh, you know, lock their children who they suspect or might have been plague exposed in the house, and then leave them there and abandon them. Um, and so we see, you know, and it's like similar things happening today where we have the best, it brings out the best in humanity, but it also brings out the worst in humanity. Um, I think we definitely see that skepticism that is resulting from um, information coming at us from a wide variety of sources. And as you mentioned earlier, social media has kind of uh, dramatically and profoundly changed the way that uh, information is conveyed. In the Middle Ages, you had sort of local gossip being um, submitted and transmitted at the same time as official documents and decrees that are coming from your government, and and then also mingled in with anecdotal stories about what's happening in other cities um, coming from, you know, local travelers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened in the the Middle Ages is that there was a lot of distrust towards, uh, I guess, like the some of the government officials in some of the towns because they would they would give and they would assign passes so that you could leave the city, um, but they were all you had to purchase them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became a pro- there was corruption involved in in the process of like who had access to escape routes from the city, who had access to like sort of health facilities. Um, and you know, as word gets out about that, there creates a generalized level of social distrust. And I think we see a lot of that that's sort of happening today. Um, in both the treatment and sort of the the narrative that is being told about COVID. How do you think future scholars will be looking at the media that's been created today and, and, and this time as in this pandemic for clues as to how to respond to outbreaks of disease in their time? What's fascinating to me as we look at how the contemporary media responds, we really started to you know, see this with 9-11, starting with 9-11, with the, 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 the ticker, the access to immediate instantaneous information and the tallies and the counts and the um, in the tabulations, we've become addicted to sort of stats and, and chronicling things. Um, and that, you know, started in, in contemporary culture around, you know, 2000, 2001, but they did the same thing in the Middle Ages with the broadsides and the sort of the tallying of the, um, of the uh, there. And, and I think that 
you know, all of those facts and stats are, are really useful in helping us kind of get a, a, a sense of the scope and scale um, of COVID. Um, but I, I, I also think the human stories are equally important. When we look back two and 300 years from now, um, sure, we're going to want to know roughly like what the, what, what the count was. Um, but we also want to know about the, the lives, the stories of hope and the stories of suffering of individuals. And that's one thing that we really lack um, when we look back on, on narratives from earlier centuries. Is that they just didn't tell the stories. Um, and so I think that if there is a, a positive aspect of social media, it is the fact that we are recording and we're documenting and we have this really like kind of vast library through the web um, of, of human stories and the human experience. What's been your comfort media during this pandemic? You know, that's going to make me sound super nerdy, but I, I think really going back and reading the uh, like medieval accounts of it, I, I think it was really, you know, especially in those early days um, of COVID, we, we didn't know what was going on and, you know, the world was kind of panicking. And I think going back and, and reading documents from, you know, primary documents from 1348 and 1349 um, and seeing uh, you know, what was happening and starting to track it. So you can kind of see the sort of pathways that are um, uh, the progression of the disease and its impact on society. But then also getting to the end of those narratives and realizing that, yeah, there was a tremendous suffering and there was tremendous loss. But what emerged out of those experiences was also like tremendous growth. And, um, you know, the economy of, uh, of medieval Europe completely and dramatically changed society. Was, there was a complete you know, societal upheaval. Feudalism mm-hmm. ended because of the plague. Um, and so some really amazing, wonderful things happened too. And, and so I look forward and, um, and, and I guess I'm reading those stories gives me messages of hope for the future too. Jana Matthews is an Associate Professor of Medieval Literature at Rollins College. We've been talking about parallels between uh, previous pandemics and earlier eras and how society has responded and some of those parallels with what's happening in 2020. Jana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Still to come, it's been a cruel summer for the performing arts. Gabriel Pricer of Opera Orlando explains how they're getting back on stage this week with the performance of Deflator Mouse. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. When the coronavirus pandemic struck last spring, the performing arts in Central Florida ground to a halt. Now, as people have adapted to life in the pandemic, the arts are coming back slowly. Gabriel Pricer with Opera Orlando switched to online performances to get the company through the summer, but nothing beats live performance, and this week the opera is back with a performance of Deflator Mouse on stage at the Dr. Phillips Centre for the Performing Arts. Pricer says the audience will be spread out in the theatre, and the cast and crew have adopted the bubble model during rehearsals, testing, masking, and social distancing. Gabriel, welcome back to Intersection. Thanks for having me, Matt. Always a pleasure. So this has been a pretty unusual year for performers. What are we looking for and what are you anticipating as you get ready to get back into the swing of things? It's been the year of pivoting and adapting for sure. We did several online programs over the summer and we were supposed to have a production in October, which we postponed now to December to give ourselves time to really prepare and figure out what policies uh, we could put in place and we needed to put in place. 
uh, to keep our performers safe, our staff safe, and then, of course, the audience safe. And we've been very fortunate uh, partnering with Dr. Phillips Center that the large venue there, Walt Disney Theater, was available and typically would sit 2,700. But with uh, CDC guidelines in place, we want everyone to be at least six feet apart. So it's a 33% capacity uh, that we're selling tickets for our production of Deflator Mouse, which is December 17th and 19th coming up this week. So you have an entire empty row in front of you, an entire empty row behind you, three empty seats on either side of you. Uh, to keep the audience safe, in addition to temperature checks when you walk in, masks are, requ- are required. Um, and then on our end, the you know, in opera, you typically have a chorus, an orchestra, all these performers, all these backstage people. So we thought about how could we do this in a safe way? And we've actually pre-recorded the chorus, both audio and visual, and they will be projected on you know, these big monitors on either side of the stage. Uh, so that way it limits how many people we have backstage. Um, the orchestra will be live. They'll be on stage, but they're going to be spread out and they're going to be behind a, um, a fabric, you know, muslin, if you will, a scrim that drops down. Uh, and they're all spread out on stage as well. They have their requirements uh, as, as much as far as they have to be distanced. So, I mean, it's a completely different way uh, to put an opera together. It's been a real experiment for us. Uh, but I think we've been able to do it in a safe way. And uh, we'd love for people to come join us in person, or you can watch it from the safety of your own home. It will be broadcast online starting uh, New Year's Eve. So you can also watch it from home. So how was it going through those online performances over the recent months? I know it was a a sort of an intermediate thing to do, but it's not quite the same as actually getting out there on stage and seeing the faces of the people in the audience live and in person, right, as you're singing. You're exactly right, Matt. There's nothing that can replace live theater, right? And so while the online programs have been a stopgap for our arts groups, I think we're all eager uh, to get back to live performances. And and so that's always been our goal. Uh, We feel, you know, humble that we can put this production on and we're we're hopeful that we can continue to do so with the vaccines now coming, coming out, you know, there, there is this light at the end of the tunnel, um, so, yeah, we've we've all been pivoting and experimenting with different things. We've learned a lot, too, at the same time. I don't think we would have put two and two together with pre-recording the chorus and having them virtually and then all the figuring out, you know, so the maestro has to conduct the same every time. So we have to have a video of him watching. He, he is watching a video of himself basically conduct the chorus. So that way the tracks line up. So, I mean, given we did all those online programs over the summer and we've been doing online uh, programs now since March, we've really had to um, learn a lot. It's been a big, big learning curve um, and it, it kind of forces you into the 21st century of what's possible uh, with modern day technology. Mm-hmm. What was the consideration that went into deciding what to actually perform or was it, had you sort of set your program well ahead of time? That is the tricky thing with opera companies we do plan far out and we had committed to using the Orlando Philharmonic and we didn't want to back out of that commitment to them uh we had committed to the artists the designers to do Deflator Mouse luckily Deflator Mouse is a pretty um well it's a crazy show it's a comedy you know uh but it's it's also adaptable in that sense so we were able to update it uh we've thrown in a lot of COVID references and the dialogue and the singing um 
And as long as you keep that fun attitude about it, the piece will speak for itself. It's beautiful waltzes, uh, just a ridiculous plot line. Um, so yeah, we, we felt like even though we had picked the repertoire before COVID happened, it, it seemed like a piece that made sense. It's a silly piece. People wear masks in act two in the show because they go to a masquerade ball. So, I mean, it's perfect, right? Very COVID appropriate. Do you, do you think people want that sort of escapism, like something a little lighter at this point in time? Gosh, I know I do. I, I, I think so. Um, there's so much on the serious side right now with, uh, dare I say, politics. And <laughs> obviously with, with COVID, um, 2020 has, has taken a toll. So we've been kind of toying around, teasing with ourselves that this is the party that 2020 desperately needs. Uh, Deflator Mouse, come check it out, right? What has been your go-to for pandemic entertainment or your escape in terms of art or theater or literature? Like, What, what have you been checking out while you've been enduring this? Gosh, you know, I, I think we all turned to Netflix, uh, Disney Plus. Uh, my wife has me watching the British baking show now, which I never thought I would be into. And you just get sucked into those things. And, and it makes you appreciate how important the arts are, you know, and, and it's important that we keep them alive. Going back to our point that we're just excited to get back to live theater. We, I've missed it. I've missed uh, being able to do live performances and interact with people. But I think we can do it in a safe way. If you're just joining me, my guest is Gabriel Pricer. He's the executive director of Opera Orlando, talking about the upcoming performance of the Flight of Mouse back on stage for the first time in many months. Uh, Gabriel, I'm wondering too, I mean, a lot of artists and creative types have been using some of this time, if they've had a bit of downtime, not everybody has, of course, but they've been using it to kind of think creatively and, and think about what's next. What's been on your mind as you consider the next 12 months for the opera company? Sure. We, we had a lot of things in the works. So we had commissioned a, a work called The Secret River, based on the children's book by Marjorie Keenan Rawlings. It's set in Central Florida about an African-American family. We were supposed to workshop that in January, but now we've had to uh, push that back. Luckily, the premiere is not until December of 2021, so we're hopeful by then we'll be able to present the premiere. But now we're thinking about, hey, can we record the workshop, maybe make a documentary? You, you start to think how technology can help your art form and how we can mesh with, with these other art forms. You know, opera has been introduced to technology in some regards with super titles, with projected sets. Uh, but really this kind of demand for online productions or streaming recordings, uh, the making of. So, so we're definitely exploring that with all of our productions moving forward and especially the secret river. Um, Cause we've commissioned that we're, we're very excited about that production. And, you know, Deflator Mouse that we're doing um, in December, from what I understand, it'll be the first indoor full opera production um, since March, uh, since the pandemic really kind of forced the, the first uh, shutdown, lockdown, as it were. So we're hopeful that other people have eyes on this and can see that there is a way to do it in a safe way. And that will enable us to to do more in-person performances in a safe way moving forward. Was there a little bit of consternation from the performers about committing to this? Because, you know, one of the things we've heard is that one of the means of transmission for COVID-19 is is by being in enclosed spaces and like singing in, in one case, uh, unfortunately, with a choir out um, on the West Coast. So 
was that a process that you had to go through and say, look, here's here's what we're we're laying out. Here's here are the steps we're taking, and we're sure that we can do this in a safe manner. Exactly right. You know, I'm I'm a singer myself, and I'm I'm in the production, so I, I take all that very close to heart. And we we spend a lot of time, many months, on what the protocol would be, and we do weekly testing with the cast, uh, temperature checks, masks are required in all the rehearsals. So the singers don't take their masks off until they hit the stage. Um, and then on the stage, obviously, it's a big venue. Uh, Dr. Phillips Center had invested in the proper ventilation system, the proper uh, ultraviolet lighting to kill bacteria. Um, and, and both of these, both the Dr. Phillips Center plan and our plan, our COVID plan, uh, we ran those by our health partners, our health partner, Orlando Health, big shout out to them. And then with Dr. Phillips Center, the, their health partners, Advent Health. Um, so, you know, relying on people that know more than we do uh, for, for things like this. And there certainly was worry from the singers. And I think it's this weird hybrid that we're all in, right? We're worried and we're eager at the same time. So I, I have to remind myself to, to find that balance. You know, I'm excited to put on the production, but I want people to know that we're doing it in a, in a very safe way. We've really taken the time uh, to cross our T's and dot our I's. Uh, weekly testing has been a big help for us to, to monitor and kind of create a bubble uh, within our performers. Yeah, interesting thinking about the bubble too, because that was the approach that obviously the NBA took um, and, you know, professional sports teams sort of looking at how they can get back to sports. And I think, you know, people think about that, but... Also, musicians, singers, especially. I mean, you, you've got to keep, you got to stay in shape. You're you're using your lungs. It's a physical activity, so it's you, you're approaching it like a sport, and and you have to sort of think about balancing out the need to get on stage, and you know, it's your bread and butter. But at the same time, you've got to keep your instrument, which is yourself, safe. So that's a bit of a fine line to walk, isn't it? It really is. And and then you think about opera being this culmination of bringing in the orchestra or the hair and makeup team, the costume team. So you, you have, at the end of the day, probably five or six different bubbles, and, and we really have to make sure we're keeping people separate. Um, and that was why we pre-recorded the chorus, so their bubble didn't cross over with the principals. The orchestra has been very isolated. Plexiglass is my new favorite thing. Uh, we've used that in rehearsals to keep the maestro and the pianist separate from the singers, and then in the orchestra to keep... For the orchestra rehearsals, you know, all these walls of plexiglass uh, to keep the players separated from the singer. So it's it's a lot of uh, logistics and red tape to figure out. But the end goal is totally worth it uh, to be able to put on this production and share, you know, with people both live and online. Uh, it's, it's totally worth it. We talked earlier in the year, too, about the impact of the pandemic on the economy, particularly the arts economy in central Florida. And, you know, it's such a big part of what makes this community tick, right? It's it's Disney. It's all of the uh, performing arts that goes on at the theme parks, not just Disney Universal, of course, as well, um, and, and SeaWorld. And I think, you know, actually for a company like the opera to get back on stage, and you were, you were talking about all the attendant artists, whether they're the musicians in the orchestra, the hair and makeup artists, the people who do the costuming and lighting and everything. I mean, that's a, that's a whole kind of city of people who are invested in this. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit, uh, Gabriel, about you know what this means to get back on stage and what the, the new economy of the arts may look like in the next 12 months as we navigate you know what's next with the pandemic and the precautions that we're taking to get through it. It's going to take a long time to recover and to rebound. You know, um, you hear about the layoffs at the major theme parks. Um, 
so many of our artists locally live gig to gig singers, instrumentalists, hair and makeup designers, costume designers, you name it. So with all, with the majority of arts groups across the United States shutting down and I don't, I don't fault them for that at all or, or waiting it out. I don't fault them for that at all. It's, it's very tough though um, for those gig to gig artists. So it was important to us to feel like we could offer that opportunity and stay true to those contracts that we had with the artist um, to give them a chance to make some income and, and, and keep their livelihood going. Thinking back to the comment you were making before about the secret river. I mean, that's, that's interesting because you're, you're talking about a brand new piece of art that hopefully is going to stick around and become part of that legacy of the arts of central Florida. Is there some other opportunities for new art to come out in the next year or so? And, you know, maybe, uh, some of it potentially been inspired by the, the challenges that people have gone through in the last nine months? I think we're already seeing that, you know, uh, yeah, Secret River was already in the works before COVID, but there's, again, all these pivots and adaptations. Um, I look at companies like Atlanta Opera that put on some amazing productions in a tent outdoors, you know, and they would have never needed to do that. Um, and the singers were in plexiglass pods you know it's very fascinating to see how they they pulled off that production uh there was um i believe it's tulsa opera did rigoletto in a baseball stadium you know i mean when else are you going to have a full opera production in a baseball stadium you know so people are going to look back and see some very unique uh productions during this time you know i i hope ours is included in that with the chorus being pre-recorded and kind of hollywood squares on there and I think there's going to be a lot of original works written, uh, inspired by this time period, whether that's uh, because of Black Lives Matter or the election or COVID-19. There's just uh, this is a pivotal moment in our history as a society. And as you know, life reflects art, arts reflects life. So that there's definitely going to be some uh, amazing pieces to come out of this time. Well, Gabriel Pricer is the executive director of Opera Orlando. We've been speaking about the Flader Mouse performances are this week. Uh, Gabriel, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Matt. Good to talk to you. And you'll find a link with more information about Opera Orlando's Deflator Mouse on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Abe Abariah. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived shows online at wmfe.org. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 